Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 5, Strange Facts of World War II and Soldier Slaying. The U.S. was deeply divided at the outbreak of World War II, which only partially explains the amazingly lax security concerning military research, bases, and forces. One example was the U.S. State Department. Its code room, housed in the aging State, War, and Navy building on Pennsylvania Avenue, had been under the control of David A. Salmon for the last 29 years, and he obviously did not see a need to change the operations of American codes ever in those 29 years. In fact, the method of cryptography that was being used was the same one created by Thomas Jefferson, the first Secretary of State. At one point, Admiral W.H. Stanley, the U.S. ambassador to the USSR, told Salmon that it was common knowledge that the U.S. State Department codes had been compromised. Enter Hans Thompson. Officially, he was a charge day affairs at the German embassy on Massachusetts Avenue, but really, he was a Nazi spy, ordered to send information to Berlin as Hitler readied his nation for war against Poland. But what would the U.S. do when Poland was invaded? Would they just vocalize their anger, or would they take action? What was being discussed between the U.S. and other countries concerning Nazi Germany's land grabbing? Hitler wanted to know, needed to know, and it was Thompson's job to find out. Without getting caught. Turns out, both requirements were ridiculously easy to carry out. Thompson suspected that when war did break out, there was a good chance that the U.S. would break off diplomatic relations with Nazi Germany, and he would have to leave. What he needed was a direct link to the State Department. And he got it. On April 30, 1940, Thompson was able to tell his boss, Foreign Minister Ribbentrop, that he had a reliable spy who was friends with a State Department code room worker. To prove this, Thompson was able to send word-for-word secret messages between various U.S. ambassadors and Washington. The friendly Nazi agent had, at first, simply become friends with a Joseph Dugan, who worked in the code room. The friend pretended to share Dugan's strong anti-interventionalist feelings. So, Dugan would share the information from dispatches with him, thinking it was going to isolationist congressmen. But really, they were sent to Berlin. Then, when Dugan stopped sharing the information, he was blackmailed by his quote-unquote friend. So, the information continued to be sent to Berlin for another year and a half. Only then was Dugan found out and stopped. Here's another example of America's less-than-solid security before entering the war. Another German spy ring, based in New York, was headed by Frederick Duquesne, who had been at this peculiar line of work for decades. His motivation? An intense hatred for anything British. By early 1939, he was well on his way to another long stint, having successfully stolen many military secrets from the U.S. Strangely, he started most of his acquisitions by perusing the New York Times. They were always writing about the latest military secrets or developments of the U.S. Army. Keep in mind that the U.S. was deeply divided at this time, as the political-slash-military situation in Europe worsened.
One day, Duquesne read about the Army working on a new gas mask by the Chemical Warfare Service of the Army. Duquesne guessed the work was being done at the supposedly top-secret Aberdeen Proving Ground in Maryland. Over the decades, Duquesne posed as a writer, newspaper reporter, lecturer, and scientist. But for this particular assignment, he decided that a direct but rather subtle approach would serve best. Writing a letter to the chief of the Chemical Warfare Service in Washington, D.C., using letterhead that gave away his real home address in New York, he asked for detailed information on the new gas mask under development. It was typed up and got right to the point. But at the bottom, he wrote in longhand, quote, Don't be concerned if this information is confidential, because it will be in the hands of a good, patriotic citizen, unquote. A few weeks later, a letter came to him answering all his questions about the mask, and then some. Then, a week later, that same letter, having been translated into German, was being read by intelligence officers in Berlin. General Erwin Rommel, like General Richard O'Connor, was not afraid to lead from the front. In fact, the German hero considered it the only way to really know what was going on as well as motivating his troops. By May 13, 1940, Rommel's spearhead were at the River Meuse, and, of course, he was there with them. Having gained a few hours of reprieve from the enemy, by the morning of the 14th, he managed to get 30 tanks across the river. Their job was to force the French back to allow the rest of his forces to follow. A few miles beyond the river, Rommel was once again in one of his tanks, looking for the enemy. Checking the area ahead, he pressed his face to the periscope. Before he could spot anything, a French shell landed very close to his tank. Fragments flew past him, barely missing him on each side of his face. If the man, who would go on to harass the British forces in North Africa, had had his head back a few more inches away from the periscope, he most assuredly would have been blinded, if not killed, outright. Such is the happenstance of war. And here are some quick World War II facts. In 1939, Nazi Germany developed a plane that could fly from Berlin to New York in 20 hours. In fact, after the war started, Hitler had one constantly on standby in case he needed a quick exit. The pilots were told if Hitler ever came on board, they were to make straight for Japan. When Hitler was negotiating the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact, Hitler wanted to see a close-up photo of Joseph Stalin. He told his subordinates that he was looking for Jewish features to see if the Soviet dictator could be trusted. He didn't find any, but in the end, he was the one to do the betraying. As German troops closed in on Paris, the French authorities had the Venus de Milo removed and replaced with a plaster replica. The real article was hidden in France and only put back on display after the war. By then, some 200,000 German soldiers had come to the Louvre to see the famous statue of the goddess of love. Right after World War II, U.S. President Truman cut off material aid to Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists after he read General Joseph Stilwell's report on dealing with the Nationalist leader during the war. 
It seems that Chang was afraid to give out the material he got from Lend-Lease, as the various Chinese warlords may have decided to hoard the material and fight him for control after Mao and his followers were defeated. As can be imagined, this went a long way to the nationalists losing to the better organized, if not better armed, communist forces. And here's some World War II slang. Bloody balls up. A rather direct way of saying a complete mess. Blue pencil. An innocent sounding substitute for a curse word, as in, where in the blue pencil is the enemy? The blue part comes from the color of pencil used by censors, who read everyone's letters. Bonza, good, or all right. Dead man's effects, someone's false teeth or dentures. Draw the crabs, attract enemy attention, and draw their fire. Jambo, which is hello, used in North Africa. It's a Swahili word. Mandrake, the standard-issued waterproof cape. Called a mandrake because it resembled Mandrake the Magician's cape. But it didn't work very well, or maybe too well, as it didn't allow any air to get inside. Any man wearing it was soon sweating, and so was soaked from within anyways. Shark bait, a unpopular officer who might accidentally fall overboard on a troop transport. Pig sticker, bayonet. And last, snowdrops. American military police in Britain who wore the required white helmet. On June 4, 1940, the last of the 338,226 Allied soldiers were taken to Britain from the beaches of Dunkirk during Operation Dynamo. But they had left behind over 63,000 vehicles, almost 2,500 artillery pieces, 90,000 rifles, and just over 76,000 tons of shells and ammo. And Hitler, sure that Churchill would now willingly talk or surrender outright, wanted this victory remembered forever. So he ordered that all bells in the Third Reich be rung for the next three days and nights, nonstop. And not to compare this to bombs landing around you every night for 50-something nights, but you have to think that the German people were more than pleased after their 72-hour torture had ended. Many of the men who served Hitler in political positions were chosen due to their loyalty over capability. One such was Gustav Simon, who would become the Gauleiter of Luxembourg. Being one of the master race, he represented Nazi Germany with his stern directives, like German would replace French as the official language. Okay, that makes sense. Nazi textbooks were to be used in schools. Again, cruel, but understandable. The courts were to be run like those in Germany. That's fine. Again, it's a part of the bigger picture now. But even Hitler might have cringed if he ever did cringe, when Gustav Simon ordered that all subscriptions on tombstones were to be altered to German. One of the many organizations created in the U.S. before and after America entered the war was the ATC, or U.S. Air Transport Command. Since mid-1940, the U.S. had been supplying Great Britain with supplies, being carried over on transport ships. But occasionally, something like parts or maybe a bomber or two needed to get there faster, hence the ATC. 
In April of 1941, FDR ordered that the tiny island of Ascension to be used as a midway point from America to Great Britain. This would allow aircraft to land, refuel, and make for the UK in two hops. And by the way, it's located directly east of Brazil. As the island was only 34 square miles, the U.S. did their best to use only enough land for their airstrip. That base was called Wide Awake Field, named for the Wide Awake Terns, or seagulls, that lost a part of their roosting area when dynamite was used to clear away some rocks at the end of the runway. Problem was, after the smoke cleared and the runway was laid out, the seagulls assumed their life would return to normal. That blasted away area was a part of their nesting ground. So, when a plane landed or took off, the birds would panic and take off to the sky, en masse, tens of thousands of them. If the mass of birds and planes ever met in the sky, there was a serious chance of losing those planes and pilots. A choice had to be made. And it was the birds that came up on the losing end. After all, it was a time of war. So at first, the birds were attacked with dynamite and then with smoke when the dynamite didn't work. The men at Wide Awake were about to regretfully inform the superiors that Ascension Island was a no-go. But then, one of the newer support personnel offered up an idea. Why not get a bird expert over here and let them figure it out? So, an ornithologist from the American Museum of Natural History was flown out. After exploring the island and the situation, he suggested that if they moved the seagulls' eggs to another location, the birds would go where their eggs were. It took a lot of work, what with having to move tens of thousands of eggs. But once the eggs were relocated, about a mile away from the airstrip, the terns never bothered the aircraft again. At the height of the Battle of Britain, Seeing German pilots parachute down became a common sight for the British citizens. Most German pilots surrendered when they landed, either due to being surrounded or injured, or they thought, like most Britons, that it was only a matter of time before the invasion was underway. One such example was pilot Lieutenant Joseph Markle, whose Heinkel bomber was hit around midnight, so he soon found himself floating down towards a group of pines near Newbury, just under 50 miles west of London. And believing his own country's news reports that the invasion forces would soon be in control of Britain, Markle decided to hide out until it was safe. But after eight days of no food and water only from a nearby stream, Markle knew he couldn't hold out anymore and decided to wait for the conquest of Britain in a British military prison camp. But as he was about to find out, his ordeal was just beginning. The first would-be captors he came upon were two young cyclists. However, it appears they assumed he was part of a vanguard of invading Germans, because after one look at him, they dashed away as fast as they could. Later, a car came by and Marco waved his hands in the air. The car slowed and Marco approached, but either through a recognition of his uniform or unable to pass up one of the oldest pranks since the invention of the car, the driver let Marco come close and then stepped on the gas, tearing away and leaving Marco to eat his dust. About 30 minutes later, a Bentley 
being driven by a chauffeur, of course, pulled up alongside the desperate German. The back door opened up, and an elderly lady motioned for Markle to get inside. He did so gratefully, and then handed her his sidearm, along with his extra ammunition. The lady smiled, said nothing, and the car headed to the nearest police station. Markle got out, gave himself up, and the lady handed the weapon over to a policeman, who came to her downed door window. Then the window slowly rose and shut as the chauffeur drove away.